0: What a joy to be with you. We absolutely love this church. We love you. We love this town and getting to be a part of it for a little while. I grew up in Southern California. My wife grew up in Mariposa. And we met and we got to be able to stop by here a number of times going back and forth before God took us out of California. But it is a joy to be back in our home state. And we absolutely love it. Um, I know it's a thrill for you to get to have Scott Ardavanis as your pastor. I've known Scott since I was probably like 13 years old. And so, I know that with Scott, there's never a dull moment. Is that right? Never a dull moment. In fact, some of you may have been surprised that he's not here and I'm here. and He didn't, maybe the word didn't get out that he was gone. So that was a surprise from him to you. So I thought we'd surprise him by just finishing the book of John today. Is that okay? (laughs) Oh my. No, we won't do that. If you have your copy of God's word, please open it to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 13. We are going to be studying two verses today. Hebrews 13 verses 5 and 6, which says this, make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid, what will man do to me? There are promises that we receive in life, promises that fill us with anticipation and expectation energizing us, bringing us joy and hope, promises that we thrive on. You have a new promise of a a diet pill that takes all the weight off you've ever wanted to lose, promises of a new car that make your commute so serene that you don't even have to touch the wheel. It'll just drive itself. Promises of a new bed that give you a rejuvenating sleep, promises of a new wardrobe that give you epic confidence in whatever you're doing, promises of better health, happier family, Smarter kids, better detergent, better pesticide, whatever it is, there are promises all around us. Even at its heart, marriage is a promise that we make to one another, to love one another till death do us part. Promises are interwoven into almost every area of life. Even our job is a promise. You get this much money for this much work. We find hope in those things and hope that what we have been promised will actually lead to the joy and the peace and the contentment and the security that is offered to us. But almost everything this world promises us actually is an empty promise. The only thing the diet pill does is make your wallet lighter, your new car comes with a higher insurance premium, your clothes wear out faster, even the money that you thought you could acquire and hold becomes an empty promise of hope or security. You see, the the value of a promise is in the character and the capacity of the one making it. You understand this. People promise you something, and part of your mind thinks, I don't know if I trust that promise. I mean, after all, you see the way that person lives? What they're promising me is really built upon their character, and I don't trust that character, so therefore I don't trust the promise. That's true in human relationships. But this passage shows us a false promise that money makes to us, And it shows us a powerful promise that God makes to us. The writer of Hebrews pens these words about 40 years after Jesus walked the planet. Forty years after the events of Christ's life took place, these things are written and predominantly written to a growing Christian community, mostly Jewish recipients of this book. That's why the book is written to the Hebrews. Those early Christians received this message and it's given to us then as children of God. In chapter 13, it begins with a series of statements of what believers are to love. Verse 1 says, let the love of the brethren continue, meaning keep that warm fellowship amongst the body of Christ, that enjoyment of one another where you actually thrive on getting together. And that certainly is tangible in a gathering like even this morning. Verse 2 says, love strangers, showing hospitality for them. Showing a kindness and an openness and a willingness to serve them. It says, even this is fascinating, verse 2 says, For some have entertained angels without knowing it. You may be thinking, I know, I've never entertained an angel. But it says some of them, you might have actually entertained or shown kindness to an angel. Verse 3 says, Remember the prisoners. Show love for the prisoners. Remember our brothers and sisters that are incarcerated doesn't say why they're incarcerated. It said, you've got brothers and sisters in Christ that are behind bars. Don't forget them. Remember their situation. Verse 4 says, love your spouse. Keep the marriage bed held in honor. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Protect your marriage. God is the judge of those who violate that. But then verse 5 takes us out of four things you're supposed to love and introduces something that we are not supposed to love. Verse 5 says, be sure that your character is free from the love of money. What the author is saying is, make sure that your attitude is never changed by your checking account. Make sure that what you have in terms of wealth has no impact on the way your heart operates. It's so easy to spot in our life, lots of money makes us happy, no money makes us sad. Sometimes there's just way too much month left at the end of the paycheck. You ever have that experience? No matter how much you have or how little you have, the writer of Hebrews says don't fall in love with it. Don't be enamored by it. Don't get attached to it. Affection for money will never translate into joy in life. Loving money then becomes an anchor on your soul, dragging you down into a pit of despair. He's not saying have a cavalier or a reckless attitude towards wealth. He's not saying view it all as disposable. What he's saying is that my attitude operates independently of my checking account. You say, why do we battle with this? Why does the writer have to put this statement in there? Well, in part because he's writing to people that are destitute. People that, who identify with Christ and immediately are put on the outside of society. They start to lose as soon as they profess faith in Christ. They operate in a business world, and a, an economy, a social climate that has no toleration for Jesus Christ. And those who identify with Christ are immediately on the outside of even the business community. And so he's writing to people who it's very easy to cling to something when you don't have choices. All of us in this room, to some degree or another, had a choice of what you were going to wear today. That choice alone puts you in such a unique group of wealthy people in the world today. And what this day held, they didn't even have a choice of what they were going to wear. It was you wear the clothes you had. We have a choice of food. They didn't have a choice of food. It was hold the food you have and eat what you have today because you only have enough for today. And the destitute nature of life causes people then to cling and to grasp onto it and to find contentment, hope, and security in what they can obtain. And the writer says, make sure that your heart, your attitude is free from that, independent of that. And while we might look at that example of who those people were in their day, we can also see the same example operative in our own life. Those of you with children, you think about upcoming dates in life from birthdays to Christmas and You see the toys that they have, and they look at those toys as old and unworthy of their time and attention, and they want something else, right? And you say, well, how much more do they want? And the answer is more, right? They just want more. I mean, it's operative in our hearts, and you don't have to be a three-year-old to have that. You can be a 42-year-old and still just simply crave more. And when are we ever content? It doesn't matter what we have. There's part of our heart that longs For something shinier, something newer, something with more intrigue in it, we just want more. One author wrote that covetousness, this longing for more, this desiring of more, is rooted in fear of need. While discontentment generally arises from a suspicion that our present portion will prove to be inadequate for the supply of our need. We think whatever we have is not going to be enough, so I have to stockpile more because I'm afraid of what could happen. I want to mitigate those potential dangers, and so the more I have, the less dangers I'll face. You see how mental this is? That fear and suspicion combine to create in us a jealousy and an envy, and in some cases a malice. Malice is putting your jealous plan into action to get what you want. All that coveting after wealth, possessions, positions, none of it brings joy. In fact, so the author says, make sure that your character, who you are, your identity, your DNA, your heart, your instincts is independent, is free from the love of money. The word for love there is that love for affections. It's the word for emotions. It's the word for longing after, craving it. Make sure it's free from the love of money, being content with what you have. He said, be content. Now, that's not meant to be discouraging on a work ethic. That's not meant to take away from enjoying the blessings that God gives in life and longing for something more refined. He's not saying you have to live in a studio apartment and only eat top ramen soup for the rest of your life. He's saying you can enjoy what God gives you and the benefits of hard work and smart decisions. But again, what he's saying is be content with what you have. Your attitude does not float on a tide of possessions or paychecks. You keep the same humble, holy, joyful, Contented character, no matter what you have or you don't have. Whatever you have, be content with it. Content with your spouse, your children, your infertility, your job, your car, your property, your lack thereof. Be content. Get above the inventory and settle your mind and your heart on Christ who provides all things for us. Let's watch a little test on this front. You look at it in your own life. Of what happens when you lose those possessions. The scriptures give us plenty of illustrations. Luke chapter 18 presents the rich young ruler. This young man who had all sorts of wealth, who approaches Jesus and says, what must I do to be saved? And Christ explains the gospel to him and ends by saying, sell all your possessions and give the proceeds to the poor. Come follow me, you'll have eternal life. He's testing him, saying, if you really want to follow me, abandon everything you find your identity in and walk behind me. Follow me. Luke 18, 23 says, the rich man became very sad for he was extremely rich. At the point of his identity is when he walked away from any opportunity for eternal life because his heart was infatuated with the things he had accumulated. The rich young ruler was tested, and he loved money. You think of another example of Job. If you read through the book of Job, you discover that Job was one of the wealthiest men on the planet. What Job had, both in terms of his cattle and his land and his possessions and crops and his own personal wealth, was almost unmatched in the world at that time. But yet if you read through Job chapter 1, in the span of just a few minutes, not hours but a few minutes, breathless servants are racing towards him just bringing in all kinds of bad news. The first one comes in and says that a band of people from another place came in and took all the cattle, took all the donkeys and slew all the servants and only this one escaped to bring him the news of it. Before he can even finish his sentence, another one comes racing in and says fire fell from heaven and consumed all the sheep and killed all the servants except I alone escaped to tell you. And before he can finish that sentence, another one comes racing in and says that all the other cattle and livestock and all the other crops were destroyed. And before the third one can finish his sentence, a fourth one comes in with a dagger through the heart and says, your sons and daughters were all in the oldest son's house, and the house collapsed, and all of them were killed, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Within the matter of just a couple minutes, Job is informed that he has gone from having everything the world wants to having none of it and we haven't even gotten into chapter 2 where his body is then subject to testing as well. Job's response in Job 1 verse 21 says, "Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away; blessed be the name of the Lord." That is a man whose character is free. From the love of money. Because while he possessed everything, his heart was not attached to it. He found his comfort in our creator, not in his creations. Our contentment, and Job's contentment was a decision to live before God independent of the blessings of God. This is Colossians 3.2. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. It was R.C. Sproul who said it this way. He said, even if the budget is never balanced, even if the stock market crashes, even if food prices skyrocket, even if my child never recovers from her illness, even if I lose my job, and even if we lose our home, yet I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. I'll rejoice in Him. I'll keep my hope fixed on Him. I'll keep my eyes set on Him. You say, why should we be free from the love of money? How can we be content with what we have? The writer does, doesn't just give us the negative of what we need to stop doing. But then he turns a corner and he gives us a promise. And he says the failed promise of wealth is going to leave you destitute. But there's a promise that we have from God. And that's the heart. That's the meat of what we're going to look at this morning. It's this promise that he says at the end of verse 5. For he himself has said... I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. My friends, this is such a calming promise, a stabilizing promise, a hope-filled promise, and a life-giving promise that we need need to spend our time looking at it today. I want to give you four aspects of this promise, four components of it that have massive implications for our life. The first one is who's making it, that we get God's presence When God makes this promise to us, he promises each of us, who are his sons and daughters, he promises us his presence. I mean, catch how it starts. He says, he himself. This isn't something that's rumored to have come from God, but God himself, the one who invented humans. I love that thought that God just, he didn't just create us with someone else's design plans, he actually invented us. He came up with the concept of a human being made us, and He does so in a way that then gives us access to Him, and He gives to us as His creation a promise. Now, there's nothing subjective about this promise. There's nothing about it that's built upon certain market conditions or economic conditions or humidity levels or barometric pressure. There's nothing contingent in this promise on something else happening. He says I will never leave you or forsake you. It's a promise backed by the character of the one making it, a promise backed by the character of God. It's a promise that first shows up in the Bible in Deuteronomy chapter 30, 31, verse 6, where Moses is speaking. He's about to die, and he's reminding those who are around him and to the nation of Israel that God has walked with them the entirety of their lives. Moses says, be strong and courageous, do not be afraid or tremble at them, for the Lord your God is the one who goes with you, he will not fail you or forsake you. Those are powerful words coming from Moses to the children of Israel as they're in this transition time and nothing's stable and everything's portable and things that they hoped would remain have not remained and they're continuing to move towards the promised land. And just a little while later as young Joshua now steps forward and he's the leader Joshua chapter 1, verse 5 God com- comes to Joshua and says, No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. What an unbelievable promise. A promise that's made to them as an unconditional promise, that then God looks to us and makes that same promise to each of us. Such comfort because it's guaranteed by His character. What I love even more is that it's not just a promise made to those whose faces you'd expect to see on the Mount Rushmore of the Bible. You know, who are those massive, towering figures that that God uses in supernatural, powerful ways? It's a promise made to the ordinary person that lives in the shadows of life. Those of us whose names will, will never be known, will be erased in time past and forgotten... But God says to each and every one of us the same promise. It's an enduring promise. It's what David had in his mind when he wrote Psalm 23, verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for you are with me. Psalm 139, in an incredible prayer of praise where David's writing, he says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? God, where can I go where I don't have you with me? He says, if I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in the grave in Sheol, you're there. And then he says this amazing statement, if I take the wings of the dawn. You know what that means? That's David's way of describing light speed. When the sun crests over one mountain and a beam of light rips across the valley and smashes against the other mountain across the way, David says, if I could harness that ray of light, if I could saddle that ray of light, if I could put wings on and take the wings of the dawn, wherever that light ends up, I would open my eyes in that new place and the text says, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me didn't know light speed was in the Bible, but there it is. That's the wings of the dawn. And as believers today, as Christians, we have the Holy Spirit who indwells us, who walks with us, who goes with us everywhere, where we are never left alone. Matthew 28 verse 20 says, I am always with you, even until the end of the age. Oh, certainly sometimes our own Doubts and distractions and things we get enamored with in this world, even our own disobedience, dulls our sense of awareness of God's presence. But He is still there. We get His presence. Second aspect of this promise is we get God's provision. When God shows up, so does everything that comes with Him. We get God's provision. You can't separate who he is from what he does. When he says, I'm with you, he says, I'm bringing with me the entire storehouses of all of my grace, all of my mercy, all of my compassion, all of my wisdom, everything that I have, I bring with me when I say, I'm with you. He brings the grace to endure, the grace to suffer loss, the grace to love others, the grace to show kindness, the grace to forgive, the grace to sacrifice. We get His peace, we get His love, we get His mercy, we get Him, but we also get everything He brings with Him. That's such a securing statement. It was Christ who said in John chapter 10 that, I know my children, my children know me, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one will pry us away from God. We can't lose what we are given in Him. But we get His grace and we get His mercy. Grace is God giving us what we do not deserve. Mercy is God withholding what we do deserve. And we get them both. The writer of Hebrews just a few chapters earlier said, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. That he understands the temptations that we experience. He knows the loneliness. He knows the fear. He knows the betrayal. He knows the loss. He knows what it is to be lied about, to be slandered, to have your reputation destroyed. He knows what it is to be reduced to nothing before this world. He knows what it is to lose a loved one. He knows what it is to be falsely accused. He knows what it is to have to work through life with nothing but the ingredients you can carry in your hands. That's why the next verse of Hebrews 4 says, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I can pour out my heart to my Creator because He promises He's going to be with me. And I get His presence and he, I get all the provision He provides. I get everything that He has and everything that He promises. He's going to take care of us. He's going to answer that prayer. I don't know your battle with anxiety or worry, but always remember Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 and following, where it speaks of this exact point of God's provision where he tells us, don't be, do not be worried about your life for what you'll eat or what you'll drink or for your body as to what you put on. Is not life more than food and clothing? He gives the illustrations. He says, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow and they don't reap and they don't put food in the storehouses, but God provides for them. Isn't your life worth a whole lot more than just the bird of the air? He says, well, what about the flowers of the field? Are you worried about clothing? God takes that flower of the field, the lily of the field, which does not toil and does not spin. It can't assemble anything to put on. But yet God clothed that flower, and how much more will he take care of you? In fact, he clothed that flower to such a degree that it makes anything Solomon came up with pale in comparison. The text says, if God so clothes the grass of the fields, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown in the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not worry, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all of these things. He knows what we need. But It says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Isn't that true? I mean, there's enough trouble. You wake up and your morning and you immediately face the onslaught of all the things the world throws at you and you say i can only get through this one day a friend told me a long time ago and it's true that god gives you no grace for your imagination like there is no grace for the trouble that you fantasize or imagine could possibly happen the what ifs and the if onlys like there's no grace for that but there's grace for what's real and there's grace for what's today And so we have to live in a world of truth and deal with the realities that are in front of us, knowing that God promises enough grace for one day at a time. And we pillow our head at night knowing that his grace is sufficient for us. He's given me the ability to love others, to serve others, to show kindness, to be forgiving, to be meek, to take the wounds and stand back up and keep pressing forward, knowing that his promise is that I get his presence and his provision. But third, I get his permanence. I get his permanence. This is a permanent promise. Not a promise for a season, not a promise for a situation, not contingent upon circumstances, not only there for the bad days, but watch how this works. Go back to verse 5. He says, I will never desert you, and I will never forsake you. Two totally different things. To desert somebody is, you stay here, and I leave. I'm deserting you. That's the words of Don't follow me. You stay there. I don't want anything to do with you. And God says, I will never abandon you here and walk away from you. But then He also says, I will never forsake you. To forsake is I stay here and I shove you away, I force you away. Get out of here. Leave me alone. Don't come back. God says, I will never abandon or forsake you. Now, each of us in this room know to some degree or another both of those situations. To some degree or another, we have both abandoned and forsaken people. We know what it is to be abandoned and forsaken. Maybe you're the one that someone has looked at and said, don't ever come back. Leave me alone. Stay away from me. Don't follow me or maybe you're the one who has said those words to others in the sinfulness of life and our fallenness we know very well what it is to abandon and forsaken each other but none of us not a single one of us who are sons and daughters of Jesus Christ will ever know what it is to be abandoned or forsaken by God. But Jesus does. Jesus does. Jesus knows what it is to be abandoned and forsaken by God. He hung on that cross and he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? Why have you turned your back on me? Why have you left me here? Why have you forced me away from you? Why won't you answer me? And the answer we get is nothing. Because as he hung on the cross, paying the wages of our sin, he was forsaken by God, the Father. He was forsaken so that we will never be forsaken. He was abandoned so that we will never be abandoned. Do you see that? Jesus was nailed to the cross by God the Father who left him there so that we would never be forsaken by God. His death in our place seals God's presence in our life. His payment of the wages of our sin, His work on our behalf means that we have a relationship with God that can never be broken. It's a promise that's activated at salvation that carries us through this life and right in through eternity. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, where He, God, made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. We get Christ's righteousness. Jesus gets our sin. Jesus gets forsaken and abandoned by God. We get adopted as sons and daughters. It's Romans 5, 6 that says, While we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, that God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But in his death on the cross and in his payment for our sin he experienced from God what we will never ever experience but those aren't the last words Christ spoke from the cross are they John chapter 19 verse 30 Christ said what it is finished it is finished what's finished the payment for sin is finished sin's mastery over us is finished God's power on display, taking away the sting of death, is finished. We can be reconciled to Him because of what God has done. This promise is so settled that in the original language, there are five consecutive negative words. It's as if, and parents, you would know this particularly, it's as if when Someone comes to you and asks for something, maybe that little kid is pestering for something, and you say, no, 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 and you fire out five no's. Do you think they're serious? That's pretty serious, right? Well, That's exactly what Christ is doing here. Five times he's saying, no, 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 no. I will not ever do this. Unconditional love, unending, even when time expires, it's never going to happen. I will never leave you, never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, ever abandon you. I will never, ever do this. I don't know if you're dyslexic like me, but I love this passage because it works both forwards and backwards. You can read it either way, you get the same promise. You I will never leave you or forsake you. You forsake or you leave, never will I. You Think about that for a minute. You forsake Christ or you try to abandon him. And what does Christ say to you? I'm never leaving you. I will never leave you. You try to walk away from me. You try to abandon me. You try to push me out of your life, you try to shut me out, I will never, ever do that to you. Let me show you a moment where this happens. It's so shocking, so staggering. In Luke chapter 22, you don't have to turn there, but just mark it down and go back to it a little bit later on. There's a scene where Peter has, in the upper room, professed his bold faith and his confidence in Christ where Christ is describing his upcoming death, and Peter's saying, I'll even go to the grave with you. I'll fight with you. It's you and me, Jesus. We got this. We're going to do this. There's no way they're going to take you away. And you fast forward just a few hours more, and they're in the garden, and the troops approach to arrest Jesus. And who's the one who jumps up in Christ's defense with a sword and lops off the ear of the high priest's servant? Well, it's Peter. I mean, that's the bombastic Peter that we see all throughout Scripture, just this audacious guy who's willing to say or do anything. He's the guy who, he he shoots first and then aims, or he pours the concrete, then builds the forms. Like, whatever he's going to do, he says the words and then thinks about it afterwards because he's so impulsive. And there's part of that that we just love. I love watching Peter because you learn so much from the guy. And he does this, and he professes his boldness for Christ and his willingness to go. Die for Christ. And in those moments of this great statement of his strength and his bravery, Christ stops him and says, Peter, tonight you're going to deny me three times. Peter's shocked. He's like, deny you? I'm going to die for you, not deny you. And as the story unfolds, someone says, hey, aren't you one of his disciples? And he says, no. A short while later, someone else says, hey, aren't you one of his disciples? And he says, no, I'm not. And the third time, someone says, aren't you with him? And with a vulgarity in his mouth, he explicitly says, I am not with that man. And Go look at Luke chapter 22, verse 61 sometime. No sooner do those words leave Peter's mouth, and he looks up, and from across the courtyard, however the place was set up, he makes eye contact with Jesus. It's not a speech. It's not a verbal rebuke. It's not Jesus saying, I told you so. No, it's not even condemning. The text just says that Jesus looked at Peter. It's that silent eye contact from across the room where Peter has just abandoned and forsaken Christ, and Jesus looks at him as if to say, never will I. In fact, not only am I not going to abandon you, Peter, I'm going to now go die for you. I'm going to pay the wages of your sins. That's how strong this promise is. It's God saying, I'll never leave you or forsake you. It's God saying, you try to leave or you try to forsake me, I will never do that to you. That's why we have such confidence when we read Romans 8 and we look at the love of Christ. When it says, what shall we then say? If God's for us, who's against us? He who did not spare his own son, he, he, he killed his own son, delivered him over for us all. How will he not also freely give us all things? Who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? Who's the one who justified? Is it not? Is, who's the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he, is he who died. Yes, rather, who is raised, who's at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Can any of that stuff on a human level, horizontal level, separate us? Not if the one who created everything is telling us that he'll never leave us. But then verse 38 of Romans 8 says, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the permanence of His love for us, that nothing will separate us from Him. He gives us His presence, He gives us His provision, He gives us this permanent promise, and last, He gives us His protection. His protection, that's verse 6. He says, so that we confidently say. That, that just fascinates me because he could have said, so that we more deeply believe or we have greater trust. But what he's telling us is sometimes you've got to look yourself in the mirror and preach the best sermon of your life, which is just simply to say what God tells you to say. Sometimes we need a verbal reminder of something we know that's true because in our emotions of the moment and our fear and our worry and whatever else is going on, the truth gets drowned out. It's not the only place in the Bible where God tells us to do this. In fact, mark down Lamentations chapter 3, and on your darkest night, your worst day, go read Lamentations chapter 3 from start to finish. Read the whole chapter. Because it's Jeremiah saying, God, you forget me. God, you're not paying attention to me. God, you're not hearing me. It's like you don't even care about me. And then in verse 21, Jeremiah says, this I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. It's as if he's going through this emotional tsunami, just this absolutely devastating experience, and then he stops and says, wait a minute, I'm remembering something here. And i, I got to go back and I've got I to drill into that thought. He says, this I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindness is indeed never cease; for His compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. It's like he has to go back and repeat back to his heart, back to his mind, something he already knows, but in the moment it's just getting smothered by all the other fears and worries and troubles of life. What the writer of Hebrews is telling us is, hey, the failed promise of money is not going to get you anywhere. That's going to lead to devastation. You have this promise of God that will never leave you or forsake you, and because that promise is true, then we can confidently say... This next statement, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? What will you do to me? Oh, sure, you could kill me, but that means instant heaven. So let's step back from that for a moment. You can slander me and destroy my name. The scripture says when that happens, I need to pray for you. You can mistreat me, which I need to endure with kindness. You can lie about me, but I need to boldly speak the truth. There's all sorts of things that man can try to do. But what you cannot do is touch my internal inheritance. You cannot touch my eternal joy. You cannot touch my eternal peace. You cannot break my eternal fellowship that I have in heaven with Christ and the saints from all time of history past. What I say is the Lord is my helper. I have a supernatural helper. I have the one who walks with me, who understands everything about us at all times, who gave his life for us, who rose from the grave and is alive today interceding for us. I have him as my helper. He knows where, he knows when, and he knows how to help. That stabilizes us against the waves of trouble, protects us from supernatural slander, providing for our needs, giving us a pathway to endure trials. This is what calms the heart of the psalmist in Psalm 46, verse 10, cease striving and know that I am God. Stop the struggle, stop the battle, and know that God is with you. Psalm 56, 3 and 4, When I am afraid, I'll put my trust in you. In God, whose words I praise, in God I've put my trust, I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? Isaiah 26, 3, The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. 1 Peter 5, 7, Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. When you have this promise anchored in your heart and anchored in your mind, You know you have His presence, His provision, His permanence, His protection. Why should we be free from the love of money? Because we have the unfailing promise of God with us. What can man do to me? Take my things, my reputation, my life, but you can't touch what I have in eternity with Christ. The hymn, How Firm a Foundation, I believe, is inspired by this verse words of how firm a foundation say this. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? Fear not, I am with thee, O be not dismayed, for I am thy God, I will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand, upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. When through the deep waters I call thee to go, the river of sorrow shall not overflow, for I will be with thee, thy troubles to bless, and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design, thy dross to consume, and thy gold to refine. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That so though all hell should endeavor to slay or to shake. I'll never, no never, no never forsake. He himself has said, I will never desert you. And I will never forsake you so that we confidently may say and let's say this together the lord is my helper i will not be afraid what can man do to me pray with me our father it's your kindness that leads us to repentance it's your kindness that sent your son to die on the cross in our place and to experience what it is to be forsaken by you and abandoned by you, knowing that we would never be. Thank you for the steadfast hope we have in you. Thank you for the unfailing nature of your promise. That while the blessings of this life, as wonderful as they can be, they pale in comparison to the eternity we have with you. And while the devastation of this life, as as hard, as difficult, as disastrous as it can be, we know that we have the promise that you will never abandon us, never forsake us. So we praise you for it. We long for the day in which we'll see you face to face. In your name, amen.